This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Jouar, and today is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, and my guest is the awesome Anshul Sag. Hi, Anshul, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it's always fun to have you on. And today is particularly fun because you and I are not huge Apple people. I mean, I use Macs primarily. I have an iPhone. I test their stuff out. They don't give me reunits, so, you know, I I have to buy stuff. But Apple had a big event this week, and they released a whole bunch of stuff. So I want to kind of go through it because I think some of it is really great. Some of it is making me scratch my head. Mm Mm-hmm. And so let's start with the IMAX because to me, that's, I felt like the most exciting thing and also the most controversial, it turns out. Yeah. What's your take? It's funny. I think that they're very sleek uh, in terms of the profile. Uh, I'm not particularly a fan of the front appearance uh, uh-huh. with the chin. Um, and I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of the white bezel either. Uh, I'm of the uh, infinity edge display kind of person when it comes to all-in-one systems or laptops. Um, But I'd say that overall, it still looks pretty good. Um, And it's kind of the one thing I I think a lot of people didn't really ask for that I think it should have had is some kind of uh, facial authentication for login when you sit down on your PC. Yeah, that would have made more sense, in fact, than the fingerprint sensor on the cer- on certain versions of the new Magic Keyboard, because I feel like that's a big technical challenge, right? To have that that secure enclave on the keyboard somehow talk wirelessly to the computer, and and I feel like you're right. Like Face ID would have made a lot more sense, or a combination, or maybe you could have spent twenty five dollars more on the keyboard with Touch ID, but Face ID would have been the default, you know. And they already upgraded the camera. So yeah, they've already exactly. made a difference. They have already made an improvement to the camera's capabilities. So why not just take it that extra step, which you've already done on your iPads and on your iPhones? For sure. Can we have a, a moment of, of joy for the fact that we finally have a 1080p camera with a proper ISP thanks to the M1 chip on a Mac for the first time in pretty much forever? I can't think of a Mac camera that's been any good ever on a computer, like on a Mac. Yet, you know, Apple has all this expertise making camera phones that are really awesome. And now they finally have an ARM chip. I'm surprised we just didn't get that as an upgrade on the, you know, the MacBook Air and Pro, the M1s. I mean, like, it feels like they were so lazy. They just put a chip in there and kept everything else the same. I kind of get why, but having bought one and loving it, I'm just, that's one of the areas that I'm like, just really bummed by, you know? I think it should also have Face ID. I think yeah. everything Apple makes that has a front-facing camera should have Face ID. Yeah, for sure. And so here's the next question for you. You touched on this. This has been very contra- – I was very surprised when I saw the announcement. I was like, okay, great, new new iMac. Looks kind of like what I was expecting. Yet every – lot, not everybody, a lot of people have written editorials and opinion pieces and a pretty mad bro about the freaking iMac design. And I'm like – I get where they're coming from, right? I think the argument a lot of people are making is that we were expecting, remember the iMac 
a G4, the one that had the the free-floating arm with a display and then the little dome uh, base. Mm-hmm. You know, think also, and alternatively, think of the Surface Studio from Microsoft, which is basically a you know a box with two, I don't know, supports that hold the screen and the screen is just a screen floating there. I think a lot of people were expecting that. In a way, I was too. But then I thought about it for a second and I'm like, you know, since the original Bondi Blue G3 iMac, we've had a chin at the bottom. You know, it had speakers and the CD-ROM and mm-hmm. the headphone jack back in the day and the IR blaster. Oh my God, IR blasters, remember those? And, <laughs> and you know, then it went away briefly for the G4 and then it came back for the G5 Mac, iMac and then the Intel iMacs and in all its different form factors and iterations. So I feel like, yes, Apple made it very thin. It's like 11 millimeters or something really thin. Something like that, and, yeah. you know, the electronics are in the chin from the, the exploded view they showed us. So they could have mm-hmm. made it just, you know, 15 millimeters and have the electronics under the display. On 100%, I'm sure Apple could have pulled it off. But, and then given us, as you said, like maybe a black bezel, even thinner bezel, like a screen, a computer that's a screen. And and I think that was not what they did because it was intentionally that they didn't. I think they wanted to be iconically an iMac. They want you to walk into the room and without looking at the back, since there's no Apple logo in the front, but there's one in the back, they want you to, and the back is never the, the one part you see anyway for most people. I mm-hmm. think they wanted you to walk in a room and go like, that's an iMac. And for that, they did the white bezel. And for that, they did the chin. I am a little puzzled they didn't put the Apple logo on the chin, though. That seems a bit odd, but... It's prime location. Yeah, I'm not mad about the design. I think I like it. And I think the white bezels are, again, a differentiator. I, I don't think it's necessarily the right thing. I'm going to have to see it with the screen turned off to see how annoying that is. But the reality is when you don't have the screen turned off, you're going to have stuff on the display. And whether you have a black or white bezel, I don't think it matters too much. I wish the bezel was a little smaller. Yep. I do like that it's super thin because that's, you know, again, you don't look at the side very often. But if you do, it's like, wow. And the colors are great. It's a nod to the G3. But maybe I don't like all the colors. And also maybe I'm not sure about how this dual color combo thing they have going with the lighter in the front. And the they're much darker than I expected in the back. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, the color is much darker in the back as opposed to the front. I don't really understand that that two tone appearance. I think it's kind of a new, it's kind of a new approach. I think we've seen some products with that before from other companies, and maybe Apple's kind of like, for once, you know, I don't know. I think the iMac when it came out, the original, the translucent thing, had been done by others before, but very not very obviously, and then they took it and made it their own, and it became right. A lot of people claimed Apple made it happen. Really, it wasn't. And then all the accessories came out. I think we're going to have a slew of, you know, color-coordinated OWC flash SSDs and, <laughs> and you know, Western digital hard drives. I think it's going to be fun for a little while. But look, the reality is this. Everybody who gets upset about this, just calm down because we're going to get a 27-inch iMac, right? Yeah. And my gut, or even bigger maybe, and my gut feeling is that it's actually probably going to be the same design. So so maybe either get used to it or maybe they're going to surprise us and do something radically different or maybe in line in terms of aesthetics, but with a small, maybe they're going to keep the chin as thin, as small as it is, but just increase the screen size. 
and and maybe it'll be white bezeled again. I don't know. Maybe the iMac, the the bigger one, will be called the iMac Pro, and it will be a different kind of iMac. Who knows? It definitely harkens to the G3 days. Um, that was actually the first Mac that I ever used in elementary school. Yeah. Um, so I, it definitely kind of evokes that feeling. And if you remember those, those were very playful. Yeah. Um, and they definitely, I mean, at least in my experience, were very prominently used in elementary schools and for education. So it was almost kind of catered um, to kids to a certain degree because of that playfulness. Yeah. Um, and I think that this might be one of those kinds of machines where they're trying to reconnect uh, with a younger audience um, because I feel like a lot of their desktops have kind of drifted into the professional space and to the, yep. you know, an older sphere of customers. And I think offering a new colorway for the iMac um, might be an, a way for them to, to you know, re- reassociate with the younger crowd. For sure. My gut reaction when I saw this thing was fun. Like, I'm not necessarily 100% on board with the industrial design. It's a little loud, but fun and unique and recognizable. And the pricing is much lower than the previous ones for the kind of performance you're going to get. Think of the performance you're going to get out of this. I'm using a 27-inch Core i5 iMac right now. It's three years old. And I'm telling you, It's boring AF to look at, okay? It's not an exciting looking computer. You know, in this day and age, like there's a lot of all-in-ones out there and I'm not sure the, you know, the old, I guess now old iMac or the current 27 iMac design is particularly exciting. It was refreshed in 2012 last, okay? That's when it lost like the CD-ROM and the, the thicker sides. And I've never really been a big fan. I feel like, This is more like what I think of Apple. Like this is, and you know, you're right. I think that the prices are right. Like think about it for $12.99 or whatever it is, the entry level one, you're getting a 4.5K IPS panel and basically a Mac mini M1 base all combined together. There's no way you can reach that price point by buying an equivalent external monitor right now, right? Yeah. And you get the cool colors and the matching keyboard and you know, the matching mouse or trackpad, which is interesting that they've color coded. They've even color coded the lightning cable to charge the keyboard and mouse, which we haven't seen Apple do color coded cables in, well, since the freaking iMac, the original. Mm-hmm. And I, that's got me excited. And then the other thing I think was really cool is that, you know, they have the AC adapter. I'm, I was a bit annoyed that it was a separate brick, although it's very small, but that they have a single fabric color-coordinated MagSafe magnetic cable that plugs in the back of the thing. That's cool. And the thing that really made me gush in excitement was that the higher-end models, just like the higher-end models have the fingerprint sensor on the keyboard, like you can't get that on the base model, but the the higher-end models have an Ethernet jack on the power brick, which is exactly where you would want to put it. Like you don't Mm -hmm. really want... An Ethernet jack. I find it even on my current iMac, which is connected wired, it's a pain in the ass because, you know, Ethernet cables are so stiff. Length. Like, yeah. If you're going to have a power brick, that's kind of how you do it. You know, you reminded me of one thing that I didn't like about the configuration was that this very clearly cannot be used for very heavy productivity. Um, they're very clearly pushing people towards a larger future model. Because 16 gigs of RAM shared between the GPU and the system, while it does improve efficiency and latency, limits you on 
you know, how many photos and applications you can have open simultaneously. And I have a feeling it's probably not very fast DDR memory either because it's being kind of in a mobile form factor. Um, so I think that will affect performance uh, in some ways. I don't think so because we've seen that with the, uh, the this is the same guts as the, the, the Mac mini M1 or the MacBook Air M1. Actually, it's better than MacBook Air M1 because it has it fans. Is. So it's the same as the it's Mac cooling. mini M1. And honestly, I'm running an 8 gig version of the MacBook Air and I don't run out of... I'm looking at the memory usage, even if I run everything I normally run on it, even Final Cut, I'm not running out of RAM. So I think the thing everybody keeps forgetting is that the M1 Max have taught us that an 8 gig model, which is the base here, is equivalent roughly to the 16 gig people had on Intel before. Now, for you and I who are power users, we really want more. I would get a 16 gig version today. But the 16 gig version M1 it's pretty much the same as a 32 gig version on Intel. It seems the memory management on the ARM chips from the Apple Silicon is significantly more optimized with OS 10 or Mac OS now than it was, than it is on anything else. And I think that's by design. And I think that if you keep that in mind, you can't look at the RAM like you're looking at the RAM on a Windows PC anymore. Sure. Or on or my iMac sitting in front of me. And I think that even the base iMac that they just announced is going to blow away everything up to probably the $2,500 iMac 27 you can buy from, from with Core i7 today. Like, I think that that's a given. So I think those kids will be okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the young ones <laughs> buying the colorful iMacs will be set for at least two to three years or made way longer than that. I've used Macs for up to 11 years, just fine. So I think, I don't know. I think, I think it's a win in terms of, like, I'm not worried about performance and specs. I think that for the intended audience, I actually think that some people right now who are on a, more of a budget and want an all-in-one Mac and we're waiting for an M-powered Mac should buy mm -hmm. this because I think the bigger one is going to be just more expensive and give you more real estate. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be that much faster unless they come out with an M2 or M1X chip, you know? So that's my gut feeling. I think they're going to come out with a larger, more powerful chip that'll be more targeted towards content creators. If I'm going to have any niggles with their design right now, for me, the thing that stands out is they put the headphone jack on the side because it's too thick to put in the back, but in the back was stupid in the first place. Like I have an iMac and the ports are in the back and it's a hassle. And now that there's an edge, I'm not even sure why they didn't put the USB type C, the two of them, you know, there's a model that has two and then there's a model that has two more. The, mm -hmm. the model with two, Actually, all models should have two on the sides and then the models that have the extra two should be on the back, maybe. You know, I feel that it would be much smarter. Like on the opposite end of where the headphone jack is, you have the two USB-Cs. Why in the back? Like that is just Aesthetics. Dumb. I think you can hide <sighs> the cables better if you put it through the back. I think that's the Oh, calculus. that's a good point. I suppose that, but that's what you see why I'm thinking. If you only have two, you should have them on the side because, you know, removable storage. If you have them, if you have four, then put two in the back and two on the side. That way, the two in the back are your dedicated, you know, maybe you buy like an OWC four terabyte drive or something and you plug it in permanently and you're gone. I don't know. I definitely like the accessibility of side ports. Um, I have some ports on the underside of my monitor that are connected to my tower. They're not very accessible. So I completely agree with you that there should be some kind of side ports on monitors, especially if it's the whole system. Um, but I would probably just say one, maybe. But if you're going to yeah. do one, why not do two? <laughs> yeah, at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's There are some things, 
you know, like if they had made it what people expected it to be, black bezel, no chin, I would have been happy to, even if it had been a little thicker. But I feel that I would have been not unique enough. It would just look like any monitor. Like you would have walked into that, you know, dentist's office and it would have been like, oh, you've got a, you know, you've got some kind of PC with a monitor hooked up. Now, no, you're going to walk into that, you know, design studio and you're going to see that thing on the reception desk and you're going to know instantly it's an iMac. Like there's yep. just no, there's a, it's white bezel chin, you know, it's an iMac. And I think people completely underestimate how much that matters to Apple. Remember, how many companies are still using the old iPhone, you know, kind of cutout in their app screenshot, you know, where you have the home button and the, the, the top and bottom bezel, or some of them are using the cutout for the, you know, for the, the face ID camera design, right? Whereas an Android, we've moved on from that years ago. We're now at punch holes for two, three years, right? It's like, you know what idea you just gave me? It's iconic. What if Apple didn't put the logo on the front of their iMacs because they want people to use them in commercials and they don't need to remove the Apple logo? Oh, maybe. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of that. <laughs> but look, the reality is this. We know how well the M1 Macs perform, even weight 8 gigs of RAM. For me, I would have to get to 512 gigs of storage. There's no way I can do without that. So mm -hmm. I'd, I'd spend the money on the top of the three that they're selling. But I'm going to wait. I'm actually wanting to upgrade my 27-inch iMac. So I'm going to wait to see what they do for the bigger screen. And based on that, I'll decide whether I can live with 24 inches or not. You know, I'm user 27, yes, but I can go down 24. I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm a spoiled boy. No, I know you are. You have like six monitors or something on some kind of giant octopus arm thing. I only have two, but they're both over 40 inches and curved. Nice. Yeah, so look, the reality is I know there's a lot of controversy around the design, but I'm like, I don't know. People I think are... What did you expect? It's Apple. Like, you, you don't be so serious. Like, it's like, come on. You know, it's like, this is for kids. This is for school. Still, like, working from home because, you know, they don't want to be on a laptop with a smaller display. Like, this is, this is perfect. But transitioning to the next topic, just because maybe we'll get, we'll get back to the iMac somehow. But the thing that puzzled me the most about the announcement is this iPad Pro with an M1 chip. Like, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. And you're going to hmm. say, why not? Don't you want that extra oomph? Like, yeah, sure, that extra oomph is great, but why not put an A14 in there? Like, the, the bottom line is, I'm scratching my head when I know how limited iPad OS is as an experience. Like, don't get me wrong, for some people, it's perfect. Music creation on the iPad, I think, is a better experience than on a big computer because you can touch the knobs and dials and a lot of the audio mixing and even synthesizing and stuff requires you to have, you know, virtual surfaces these days. It's a lot easier with touch than it is with the mouse. Same with if you're doing like, you know, if you're an artist and using the Apple Pencil, I have no qualms with that use case. But I feel like for the average things that you're doing, to me, macOS is a better experience than iPadOS for my productivity need. And I think the average person's productivity need. Once you get serious with an iPad, you're going to buy a case. That case is going to have a keyboard and a trackpad. And now the iPad and, and, and Apple has relented and admitted that the trackpad is a thing for an iPad. So we're almost there. But now they're giving us Thunderbolt over USB-C and they're giving us an M1 chip. And I'm like, does that mean that iPadOS is going to evolve into something crazier than we expect? Because it seems like the hardware is complete overkill for what you need on an iPad. 
I could be wrong because I'm not an iPad Pro user and I could be wrong because maybe the A14 chip doesn't cut it with that crazy new um, micro LED display on the higher end model. But then why make the lower end model with an M1? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't get it. Also, why make two different ones that don't have the micro LED? Like, I don't get that either. What's your take on the iPad Pro? Are you scratching your head about the M1 chip on this thing? Not necessarily, because the way I see the M1 chip is that it is a evolution of the A-series X chips that were in the iPads. To me, right. it was a it was a not too far derivative. And if you remember, they were using iPad chips in the early development models of, um, you know, the M series development kits, right? Right. So yeah, yeah. I I think that the that 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 line between the two is very fine, um, and I think that they've just decided that um, there's no need to keep both around, and if they're going to be building that chip across so many different devices why not also have it in the ipad so i i think the way i see it is they want to create a premium ipad experience for the users who live and breathe on the ipad and i know there are people that do oh yeah um, it's their primary computer um mm -hmm. and it might not be for everyone but i do think that they are creating this for the power ipad user um and, you know, the line between the iPad and the, the MacBook Air specifically have been very blurred. But even the MacBook Pro at this point um, are very blurred. Um, and I think that they are doing this because um, there's going to be users who buy both. Um, but most people are going to choose one based on their preferences. For sure. And I, I just think that they want to give people choice at this point, even if it is confusing some users. Um, but I do think the micro LED display is kind of a nod to the professional user who wants a portable high quality display that isn't attached to a desk um, so they can do it for previs and stuff. Oh, hey, I'm all for that display. I just find it weird that, you know, here we are, you know, like, does that mean the next Mac Book Pro 14 inch or 16 inch replacement with an M1, M2, M1X chip is going to have a micro LED display, it better. And at, by that rate, I would say we need 5G as an option on the MacBook. Now it's clearly possible, right? So we've seen them put 5G on the M1 chip. Of course it's possible. I, that was never in question. But my point is we now physically have an example of that. And if you look at the prices, like two terabytes, it's crazy to me. You can't get two terabytes on an M1 Mac right now. <laughs> at all but you can get two terabytes of storage on an m1 based ipad pro like <laughs> you did it like you're right it's definitely a pro machine but i don't see the software f like keeping up like i'm sorry i don't care if you're into professional music development or you use the apple pencil all day long i still feel that they're throttling back the possibilities in software here knowing what the chip can do in hardware like, I don't understand it. Like, this to me, this screams, this should become a two-in-one macOS device. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of effectively what, the niche that it fills today, right? 
Well, no, because it doesn't run macOS. So you're missing out on all the, you're missing out on the ability to dock this with a big, like you can't, this is the thing, you can dock it with a Thunderbolt 3 display, but then you don't have a GUI with a mouse. Well, you kind of do, but it's not a real pointer because it's a trackpad. I mean, it's just like, it's messy. It's not right. Apple, you need to fix this. You need to give us macOS with touch. In the same way as I can run iPad apps on my one M1 MacBook Air right now. Sure. like. And it's a, it's a terrible experience on the M1 MacBook Air because there's no touch screen on the freaking Mac. And again, like you're so close in both directions at this point that it's <laughs> like, I know maybe they don't want to cannibalize. They want people to buy all four items, you know, the fourth being the Apple Watch. They want Apple Watch, iPhone, iPad, and Mac ecosystem in people's hands. And not to mention Apple TV, which we're going to get to. But I'm very puzzled. I'm very impressed with the hardware, even though industrial design wise is pretty much the same, but I'm just impressed with the guts of it. And that ultra wide camera front, you know, for the tracking does auto tracking, auto panning again. Why is that not on a MacBook? Why is that not on that brand new iMac? That iMac is ripe. You don't move the screen that much on an iMac. They put a good camera, but they didn't make it ultra. I just, yeah, like, wow. There's a lot of inconsistency in the front-facing cameras in Apple products. Oh, boy. Uh, especially when you know what they're doing on their phones. Uh, I don't know. The iPad Pro is a mystery to me right now. And But I think I want to add that my, like, the rational thinking engineering aspect is that chip shortage is real. If you're going to make three chips, because say you make a new A14Z or an A15 even, right? You introduce that with the iPad Pro. Then you have three chips to deal with, M1, A whatever, and A14 for the iPhone. So this makes a lot of sense, actually, that they have two chips, right? They have the more powerful. So that's the M1. They put it in everything. You know, they they bin them, right? Like the slightly flawed ones get the seven-core GPU. The better ones get the eight-core and perfect. And then they have the A14 for the phones is fantastic it is a 14 right that's where we're at i think that's where we're at i lose count sometimes so i don't blame you like please correct us in the comments and twitter <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing is the air tags and i'm excited about this because i don't know how to explain this but i feel like tile could have done all this and it just didn't and now they're mad and you know what f you because like you should have anticipated that something this is going to happen. And these kind of devices, these tags that let you find stuff, only really work well when you have an ecosystem around them. And, you know, Samsung's got them, but Samsung, even though there's a lot of Galaxy phones out there, it's nothing compared to the iPhone ecosystem and the iOS ecosystem. The fact that they've integrated this so seamlessly... And it's so Apple in a douchey way that they sell you this thing and it's a token and you have no way to attach it to anything except maybe throw it in a pocket or tape it. And you have to spend extra money for a keychain thing to hold it onto your key. It is, they're building a complete new ecosystem of accessories on purpose for this thing. And I kind of love it and hate it at the same time. Plus the, you know, nod to you know, make fun of tile here. All the tiles have remedied this now, but the original tiles couldn't be charged or the battery couldn't be replaced. And well, this thing has a replaceable CR2032, right? So it's like, hello, I don't know. I think the whole thing is genius. I think the fact that if somebody throws a tag 
in your bag after three days it starts beeping, right? Because, you know, they're trying to track you, but it's not attached to your devices in any way. So it tells you that. Like all the, they thought of all the privacy aspects and the fact that it's ultra wideband and it has Bluetooth makes it, you know, much more trackable and that every OS on every Apple device has the back end to make that all work for the Find My architecture. And the thing that really blows my mind, Angel, is that this got NFC and you can tap anything that's NFC onto it, any device that can read an URL via NFC, meaning all Android phones pretty much that have NFC, all the iPhones, of course, and instantly it'll take you to a link on the web. You don't need special software. It brings you to the web to a page that is hosted by Apple. For each tag, there's a page, and that page has whatever private information the user has put on there, like call this number or whatever, you know, reward or whatever, so that you can get your item back. I mean, I don't know if, maybe Todd does this too, and I don't know about it, but it's just brilliant use of cloud tech there, right? I think um, they've let the market figure things out to a degree. For sure. And and decide what was missing uh, and take advantage of their platform uh, that they already have in place across all devices and how seamlessly they handle stuff like Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and NFC uh, in ways that others don't. And um, ultra wideband that they've had on two generations of iPhones that we didn't know what the hell they were using it for. And there it is now. You yeah. got an ecosystem already out there of basically scannability for your lost tags. Which is like almost half a billion devices because it's about how many they sell per year. Yep. Um, so I think it's interesting. Ultra wideband has always been an IoT technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that they have some room for improvement in terms of making IoT more seamless. And I think the good thing is that there are a lot of smartphones out there that are constantly moving. But I think it would also be good to have more devices like HomePods in place to make that accuracy better because that's one of the benefits of ultra wideband is proximity. Right. So I think in the future they would be able to, if there are more HomeKit UWB compatible devices that can actually use AR to show you where the device is. And I think yeah. that's the long term vision. Um, but I think they need to get their smartphone. Well, smart home business in order because, as you know, they kind of fall started yeah. on that one. Yeah, that's definitely not their strengths. And I would argue that even Siri is not up to scratch yet. I mean, you know, it's it's it nice to have. Siri does some things really well, like on, on Apple Watch, it's brilliant. But I feel like on anything else, and it's only brilliant because every other assistant and every other watch is a total disaster. Like the delay in getting Google to respond to you in an Android Wear device, the queries take so long. And it's amazing to me because we, isn't there offline Google Assistant now that should be on the watches? I don't know. It used to not be that way. That's the thing. In the early days of Google's like smartwatches, it was extremely responsive. But I think they dialed it back because it was probably chewing through too much battery. Yeah. And I'll never forget that leap or lack thereof, step back. But I I use Siri quite a bit on my watch as well because I prefer Apple Watch over pretty much everything else. And I just, there's a lot of times where Siri is just completely off 
from what I'm asking oh, yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like what it does for you, it's not that great. But the responsiveness, at least on the watches, is significantly better than anything else. And it's kind of funny to me because I think that the responsiveness on phones, Google Assistant is way better. It's way faster. It's just way more accurate. It's just way everything else. Like even on a like speaker, I have Alexa, who's going to respond to this in a second. I have her in almost every room and I have, you know, Google in almost every room and it's night and day. Like Amazon's product does a good job at controlling my home automation and that's basically all I use it for because I just don't have that many devices that are highly, you know, compatible with Google stuff. But when it comes to like having an AI and assistant that helps me with my stuff and answers my questions accurately and knows my calendar and my email because I'm invested in the Google ecosystem, the assistant is just like a billion times better, it seems to me. And people are going to argue, well, Miriam, you should link your uh, calendar and stuff to the uh, Amazon product. And I'm like, nah, and I don't really want that for so long. But if I, even if I did, I don't think it'd be as good. There's no way. It's not first, it's not native. It's not first party, right? So. Yeah, I, yeah. I pretty much am a mostly Google smart home situation, but I do use Alexa because I have a Ring doorbell camera. Right, me too. It's just the best way of seeing who's at the door without having to get up. For sure. Yeah, so I think those AirTags, and I, I think also the pricing is really aggressive, which I think is interesting compared to Tile or even uh, Samsung's tags, which, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword because you have to buy accessories to make them to make it functional for many things. But mm-hmm. I think for most things, like you throw that, I would throw one in the bottom of my bag, basically, and it wouldn't go anywhere, right? It would just sit there. So that's one, that's easy. Honestly, I wouldn't be against taping it with duct tape on something like <laughs> like uh, punk rock that stuff at that point, you know. It's not the best solution, but I think there's a lot of DIY. One nice thing is going to create a lot of DIY like you're going to be able to go on Etsy and buy like holders for your smart tags and stuff and because it's not like that's proprietary. It's not like, and like MFI where you need an interface, right? It's just like it's just, you know, if you're leather worker and you like to build nice things out of make like things out of leather you could make your own little you know pendant for your for your air tag and i think that's cool i think we're going to see a lot of that but it's ironic that apple didn't even put a hole in it like not even one little hole so you can like put a strap on it or something yourself like you have like there's no way to hang it that's that's the thing that blows my mind about it yeah but it's ip67 it has nfc has your ultra wideband and the battery life, I don't know if they say anything about it. I'm sure it's pretty good. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. I can't remember the, what the stated battery life was, but I would assume any of these kinds of devices need to last years, a long time. At least a year is what I'm rooting for, you know? Oh, man, Apple, all the things. Let's talk about the Apple TV 4K. I don't have a lot to say about that. Finally, a new remote is basically like my big hooray moment. I never went to the current Apple TV or the previous to this one. I have an Apple TV. It's a 1080p one. It's the last one with the metal remote from the previous gen that doesn't have apps. And it is falling off the cliff rapidly. Like I have to keep catching it so it doesn't crash down in the ocean below because I still need to use it for a few things. And uh, for my projector in particular, because it, you know, it doesn't have, it's not a smart projector. So I, I need, if I need Netflix, I need something. You're going to say I could just plug a Roku and be call it a day since Roku is so 
so awesome. And I could, but I like the AirPlay functionality. So I didn't upgrade to the new ones and I'm glad I never did because the remote is by all, you know, by all the reviews and all the opinions out there, terrible experience. And now they finally fixed that. That remote seems like a normal human could use it. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) I think for me, I've never actually really ever used Apple TV, um, primarily because I've tried to use literally everything else. Um, because I don't, I wasn't really that invested in the Apple content ecosystem like some other people are, where they bought movies and other and like iTunes and stuff. My Apple TV is not even logged into an Apple account. It's literally <laughs> for AirPlay and whatever built-in apps exist. You know, I have a, an Nvidia Shield TV, which is like well, there the, you go. You know, the Ferrari of streaming sticks nowadays. Yeah, and it's awesome. But now I have a a, a Sony OLED TV, which basically has the same functionality. Right. Um, so I haven't really been using it much, but I, I'm really, I love the Android TV interface, at least the latest one. And it's just so easy to use. Yeah. I have the T-Mobile, uh, TV vision, whatever it's called, uh, T-Vision thing. Um, they send me a review unit and it's an, it's essentially an Android TV device, mm-hmm. the new Android TV and it has Chromecast and everything. It's great. It's really great. I mean, it's interesting because their T-Vision app, whatever TV vision, whatever it's called, is just an app inside of an Android TV box or stick that they give you, essentially. And so it's nice. I'll, I'll be honest, though, that for the average user, I went to an Airbnb not too long ago. Theo and I escaped to go to Palm Springs for a few days to just chill out. We rented a whole place. And they had a Roku on there. And it's my first time really spending time on a Roku. And mm-hmm. it was really cool because they had like a guest mode where you could log into all your services and you could set how many days you were going to be there. And at the end of that time, it would reset and delete all your logins. That was pretty cool. But then I used the UI, the user experience. It reminded me of what you'd expect from Apple. It's so seamless and easy and intuitive. And the folks at MediaTek sent me a Roku stick maybe nine months ago. And I think I'm going to set that up. Like, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with the complexity of even Android TV, honestly. It's very nice, but it's it's very complex for the average user. And our LG TV has a terrible, you know, user interface. It was really cheap. And I really love the quality, the display quality for what we paid for it as a 4K TV. And I have no, you know, regrets, but it's even more cumbersome. I would rate the Roku experience as being the best for me, followed by... Possibly the old Apple TV experience because it's easy, followed by the Android TV, the new Android TV, followed by my LG TV. But that's my point of reference. I have not played with the Sony TV or with a Samsung TV, so or a Vizio or TCL. TCL super popular. Isn't TCL Roku though? I think so. That's what yeah, I was going to say. Built-in Roku, right? A lot of different TV OEMs now have Roku by default, and it's become its own platform. I think they're doing something special. I think Apple needs to look at it. I know it's a different thing. It's not as powerful, you know, games and all that. But honestly, it's just so seamless and polished and simple and easy. You know, it's like I feel like I could give it to my grandma and she'd figure it out. Like, you know. And yeah. So, I mean, look, the new Apple TV 4K, no-brainer. I don't know. I guess it does HDR now or something. It has a new chip. But the A12 is in, in there instead. Like, great. But the remote is what I'm most excited about because, man, <laughs> like, you don't really need to reinvent the remote. It's just like, that's the thing about the Roku that made it so good for me is the remote. The fact that there's a headphone jack on the remote. Like, of course you do that. 
You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, Bluetooth and all that is really nice. I get it. Like if you have a nice smart TV that can do multiple Bluetooth casting to multiple headphones so you don't wake up your neighbors when you're watching Independence Day, great. But you know what? Most people don't even want to fiddle with that. They find an old pair of earbuds from Apple in a drawer, they plug it into the Roku remote, and they're not waking up their neighbors. You know what I'm saying? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, that's kind of my take. I, I can tell you're excited about Roku. <laughs> yeah, strangely. Really. I mean, anything else you have you, you feel like stands out about the, the uh, Apple TV? I mean, am I missing anything? I don't know. No, I, I was... There was a rumor way back in the day that there was a chance that Apple wanted to use the Apple TV as its leaping pad for its VR and AR headsets, but it seems Uh. like they've gone with a standalone approach. Um, So I was kind of watching the Apple TV just to see how much power they were putting in it and whether or not they wanted to, you know, make it as powerful as the rest of their devices to prepare for some kind of split split rendering or something like that, but it doesn't seem like they've done that. No. And then there's other uh, announcement from Apple that I didn't put in their show notes, but you know, there's a purple iPhone 12, which is pretty awesome. In my opinion, there is the podcast platform that they are monetizing, but mm-hmm. it's very much like the app store. Like as a creator, you're interfacing with Apple now, you know, and uh, as a customer, you're interfacing with Apple and you, you know, there's a cut that goes to Apple. 30%. If you unsubscribe and want a refund as a customer, the podcaster doesn't get that portion of Apple's revenue refunded. It turns out there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, but it's the same with the app store. So I think as a podcaster, I'm not sure. Like if I want to go subscription-based, I, I don't think I would do that to anyone who's listening right now. I'll always have a free version for sure. But I might have like a bonus version if I can pull it off on, on that platform because I'll, I'll be frank with you. Here's the funny thing. I talk mostly about Android phones, right, Anshul? I mean, that's my bread and butter because, not because I like Android better and why I do, but it's not that. It's just more like there's more variety in that ecosystem. And I mean, there's more launches and releases and camera features and, you know, imaging is a thing for me. It would be very hard for me to focus just on Apple if I want to cover mobile. So as such, you know, you'd think that my audience would be the same, primarily Android users, etc. But no, if you look at my stats, the vast majority of listeners are on Apple podcasts in some way or another. I think my number two is Pocket Casts, of course, the great app. And that's available on both iOS and Android. And then after that, I got Google and Google Podcasts, way lower. And then Spotify is the last one, but it's almost on par with Google Podcasts. And I'm actually surprised that Spotify isn't higher up. But it's really interesting when I look at my stats about who listens on what. Like, you're all listening on Apple devices, aren't you? Like, it's so interesting to me considering my audience is, I think, more an Android audience. So maybe I should do something on this Apple podcast (laughs) subscribe thing. Let me know, folks. Let me know on Twitter. If you're listening, tweet at me right now. Would you pay extra for extra features on a subscription-based Apple podcast thing? I'd love to know. There you go. Yeah, I mean. Got to get them involved. We we have our podcast on all the platforms, and I've found that Spotify is the most painful one to deal with. Mm-hmm. in almost every imaginable way. Yeah. Um, and I kind of just have us up there because I want us to be up there. Oh, yeah, but, me too. But the presence we have there is negligible compared to all the other platforms. 
I find that for me, what was the deal breaker that made me finally go with Spotify was the fact that a lot of cars have integration for Spotify built into the UI of the car. I'm not even talking about like pairing your phone. And being able to get to your podcast that way is just great, you know, mm -hmm. because you don't even have to have a subscription or a login. You just go in the car and you say, I want to listen to the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl. And boom, there it starts playing it. Like, and then you can tap on the screen to subscribe. And that, you know, because it's kind of the default podcast app for a lot of platforms that are not phones and computers, makes it a very interesting proposition. That's why I felt like I needed to be there, you know? Yeah. I just think the searchability is a real pain. Oh, a lot of it is a real pain, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think in general, a lot of things are a real pain with Spotify. I think that if you're just a user listening to music, it's a great experience. But if you go totally. uh, as a creator, it's just like, oh, it's tough. So let's see. We've covered pretty much all of Apple, I would say. Let's talk about this phone very briefly. So Infinix is a company out of China making affordable smartphones. They've been selling them unlocked for a while. And they reached out to me and said, hey, can we send you a review unit? We have a new phone hmm. coming out. And I was just like, whatever. Yeah, sure. You know, like I looked at their website and I was like, oh, yeah, these are very cheap phones and it'll be a lull, right? I'll just I'll have a good time trying it out and seeing how bad it is. And lo and behold, it's not bad at all. Like so this this phone is called the Infinix Hot 10s nfc and, and i've got in the show notes i've got a venture beat link in there of like that goes through the details of the phone so you can have a look and then in my unboxing video so you can see what it looks like it kind of blew me away honestly it is a big phone with a 6.82 inch display so we're talking pretty big but it's kind of geared to gamers yet it's 120 dollars so you're like how's that work well they've got a helio g85 from mediatek in there so you know that's about the same performance as a Snapdragon 720G, roughly. Like a bit less, maybe. In some areas, a bit more. I think AI, it's a little better. But like, that's not bad for $120. And you're going to say, well, the rest has got to be crap then, right? And it's not too bad, actually. It's got a 720p display. It's LCD. It's not that great resolution. But 90 hertz for gamers, that's pretty decent. 180 hertz touch sample rate. The viewing angles are a little compromised. It's IPS, but like it almost looks like a TN LCD to me. You know, it's not. <laughs> but the colors are good and the contrast is good. If you're looking at it the right way, it's really nice. Four gigs of RAM, one twenty-eight gigs of storage. I think four gigs of RAM is a minimum for Android. One hundred twenty gigs of storage is pretty generous at that price point. It has mm -hmm. a micro SD expansion as well, and then five thousand milliamp hour battery, which is pretty nice. NFC, which. I think it's really nice to have, especially in North America for Google Pay. A lot of people at that price point don't care, but I think that's interesting that a Chinese manufacturer of all things decide to put NFC on a $120 phone. Like, Well, think about how much NFC is used in China. Not. That's, you know, why, yeah. why I'm surprised. And then the main camera on the back, so it's a bit weird. It's got, you know, a front-facing camera, whatever, 8 megapixels, and it's got a, a rear triple camera system, but it's really weird. Hear me out. 48 megapixel Samsung GM1. That's really nice for the money. I mean, it's not the greatest 48 megapixel sensor, but combined with the G85 ISP, from I'm seeing some pretty decent performance in terms of imaging quality out of that sensor. And the low light on this is really good. So I don't know what they're doing here, and I think they're using ISP special sauce from MediaTek mostly. But they have two extra sensors. They have the depth sensor. It's a two megapixel, you know, your usual like portrait depth sensing and then get this they have a 0.08 megapixel that's 
Quarter VGA 320 by 240, if you do the math, sensor that has massive 2.5 micron pixels and a very fast f over 2.0 lens. Well, very fast, a fast f over 2.0. And they're using that as a monochrome light assist sensor. So they're using it for low light yep. to augment the main 48 megapixel, which are their binning, obviously. So it's outputting 12 megapixels. And honestly, like, if you take a sh night shot with their night mode, you get a really nice looking photo with a lot of light. But if you look, only the bright parts are very detailed. The dark parts are very fuzzy. Hmm. But overall, when you're looking at a picture on a phone, that phone or even another phone, it looks very, very good. And it's like, you can tell there's a lot of computational photography going on. And I've never really seen a phone that had a 0 0.08 megapixel quarter VGA a light assist sensor like that and used that way to enhance an already pixel bin 48 megapixel sensor to improve the light performance combined, I presume, with MediaTek's magic here. And for 120 bucks, dude, like the thing that blows me the most, I've been using this phone on and off for the last few days and it's fast. Like it responds to what you're doing really well because of four gigs of RAM and the chip just keeps up and the 90 Hertz makes things look smooth. And because it only has to drive 720p dis of display, it doesn't really, it's not really sweating much. It just feels so responsive. I'm just kind of blown away. Somebody can make a phone that costs $120 that feels basically like a Pixel 4a, you know? No, you're right. It's crazy. I think it's, um, I think it's definitely them finding the right features that allow them to get the best capability without making too many compromises on cost. Yeah. I think this this phone has shown it's basically the sweet spot of pricing when it comes to display, camera, SOC. Yep. And I think any other way you configure this, it doesn't come out that price. Exactly. And you know, it's plastic build, but it's, it feels, it doesn't feel creaky or crappy in hand. It reminds me a lot of the Poco M3 from Xiaomi, which was a $160 phone the, that was missing NFC because China, but they had everything else. That one has a 1080p display. It's 60 hertz, but it's 1080p and uh, has a really nice camera on it and feels really great for the money. But it's interesting to me that we're now seeing smaller Shenzhen-based companies beyond the big juggernaut that is Xiaomi doing this kind of weird part spinning optimization and coming out with these very affordable but very solid overall experience phones. This runs Android 11. I mean, it's got a skin, but I put another launcher on it because it was obnoxious. And I'm fine. Like, I'm back to, like, a, a Nova launcher, and it's perfectly okay. So I went into it going, ha-ha, let's, let's have fun with this and see how bad it can be. And then I come out of it going, like, no. If I had nothing else right now but that phone to live with, I'd be okay. Like, I could totally live with this. It's kind of amazing that I could totally live with a $120 phone. Yeah, I, I think it's really amazing. And I I have a feeling that this will probably trickle down to 5G phones pretty soon too. Yeah, for sure. As an analyst, what are you seeing? Like, what are you predicting is going to happen here? Like, I think, you know, we're starting to see, of course, Snapdragon 480 phones and Snapdragon 690 phones but not that many. And it seems like MediaTek is really leading the way in 5G here with uh, Dimensity 700 and the 800 and the 1000 and 1200. I'm also hearing rumors that MediaTek is not experiencing as much of a shortage in chip manufacturing as Qualcomm is, but I don't know if you've heard anything about that. So do you think we're finally going to see some 
really affordable 5G phones from MediaTek in the US this year. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, that new Samsung. The Samsung A32 5G is Dimensity 700, yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's... But like, it's still not super cheap, you know what I'm saying? Like, But it's like the cheapest we've we've seen today, I in think. In the US. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just the beginning. But the way I see it is um, MediaTek has really solidified themselves in that part of the market. And they've become the volume leader. Yeah. And I, I think that they are happy with where they are today. Uh, both in the mid range and the and the entry level, so I think that they're, they're going to probably be one of the drivers of a lot of that entry level price point for five G. But I don't think they're going to be alone. I, I think Qualcomm is going to push more aggressively uh, because I don't think they want to necessarily lose that segment of the market to MediaTek. Yeah, but at the same time, um, Qualcomm definitely still carries a more premium uh, name to it than MediaTek at least does today. But I think MediaTek has done a very good job of combating even that. Yeah. It's a big phone, but it's a, got this really cool diamond, like, big finish in the back. And, you know, it has all the US bands. It has Band 66 on it. That's impressive. So they, they actually did focus on making sure it would work on most US carriers. I have to say, though, I put a Verizon SIM in there and... Nada. <laughs> so uh, it's just going to be a T-Mobile or AT&T proposition only, or NVNOs. But um, let's switch gears and talk about, speaking of carriers, talk about this Verizon getting C-band. And, you know, here we are now with T-Mobile, you know, kind of like eating their lunch, in my opinion. I don't know. What's your thought on this? Like, am I right? Like, 2.5 gigahertz has got to be better than 3.7 gigahertz in terms of penetration in buildings. And mid-band is really where the battle is going to be fought, I think, in the urban centers anyway, because you're going to get multiple hundreds of megabits, potentially, to the indoor user versus, you know, what we have today with 600 megahertz, which is, you know, tens of megabits more ubiquitously available, blanketing the country. But I feel like, I just feel like, how did AT&T and Verizon mess up this strategy of launching their 5G so badly? Like, how did they not plan this? So I think it comes from a, a multitude of issues. So first of all, Verizon, their C-band acquisition cost them $45 billion. I know, it's crazy. And AT&T spent $25 billion. Um, and, and basically what this comes down to is the fact that both companies have rested on their low band holdings for too long and rested on their high band millimeter wave for far too long, specifically Verizon. Oh my God, yeah. If you look at how AT&T has marketed 5G, they are not necessarily pushing millimeter wave remotely as hard as Verizon has. No. And Verizon's problem is, is that they have tried to market themselves out of a corner. And what they've done is they've actually marketed themselves deeper into the corner. And millimeter waves propagation is actually better than what a lot of people believe, but it is still- It's actually pretty good. I've got it around the corner from me and it's like, I can step out my door and get millimeter wave, but not inside, you know? Yes. And I think, um, you know, millimeter wave is going to have to be supplemented by something else whether it be mid-band or low-band, and that was always going to be the case. I just think yeah. that Verizon tried to promise people something that was never going to be possible, 
And I think that's really what has fed a lot of the, um, I don't know, hesitance towards 5G in general. That combined with T-Mobile's low band not necessarily being much faster, combined with Verizon's DSS version of 5G being slower than their 4G and actually consuming more power, I think those are really what have hurt uh, Verizon specifically. Yeah. Um, AT&T is, I think, in a better position overall. They're kind of in between T-Mobile and Verizon in terms of spectrum holdings and and coverage. Yeah, but they don't seem to be doing much with it. Like, at least for me here, I get low band 5G on AT&T and it's worse than their 4G. They have almost no spectrum allocated to it. That's really what it comes Uh. down to. There's very little spectrum that both Verizon and AT&T have today that is actually being used for 5G. And that was kind of the case with T-Mobile on the 600 megahertz until they got 2.5 with their acquisition of Sprint. And honestly, the 2.5 spectrum, what a lot of people are really underestimating is Sprint has done so much of the legwork on figuring out propagation and penetration and all these crazy problems that 2.5 had way back in the WiMAX days that mm-hmm. now with 5G and, and you know, massive multi-user MIMO, um, you're going to have, I mean, I've seen personally 600 megabits per second in, of blanket area. And once they roll that out nationwide um, by just flipping towers, uh, I, it's going to be very hard to compete with that. It's going to be dope. Yeah, and I think, you know, WiMAX finally paid off 10 years later. <laughs> As part of the GSM standard. Yeah, and that's ironic because everything gets absorbed by GSM anyway. I think it's interesting. And I feel like I've always kind of had the feeling from the early days, before they even talked about the layer cake to us at Timo, that they had obviously pivoted on the sprint acquisition, but that they had, you know, they had figured it out. Like, and this is going to be majorly paying off in the next few years, I think, for everyone uh, that's a customer there. And it's going to be dragging Verizon and AT&T into a whole more competitive mode, I think, because when they start feeling the pain of the mid-band rolling out on Timo, holy crap, people are going to really notice the difference. They don't notice the difference now between 5G and 4G, but... Q4 is going to be real ugly for Verizon. Well, let's see what happens. It'll be great. I'm excited. Quick last thing I want to mention is OnePlus, as promised, last week we talked about the OnePlus watch. I reviewed it. I'm personally pretty positive about it. I'm aware that it's unfinished. And speaking of unfinished, I was confident that OnePlus would release an update, and they have this week. And there's another one coming, again, until they actually launch that update with the right features. I'm not going to be hooraying, but this current change log says improved gps performance improved accuracy and activity tracking like walking and running optimize heart rate monitoring enable notification app icons for the most frequently used apps which was a big problem uh, improve uh, race to wake optimize notification syncing known bug fixes and improve stability that's the first update the one they promised us mid-april so we're a few days behind again i didn't have this update before the review so it doesn't solve all the things. There's still a lot of things missing, like proper 12, 24-hour format auto-switching based on your phone settings. That doesn't exist yet, or based at least on a setting in the watch. Right now, you're stuck with 24 hours if you use a 24-hour watch face, like a digital one, basically. <laughs> so you don't like 24-hour format, your SOL. 
And they still have to do the 110 plus workouts they promised. They still have to fix a bunch of features that's coming. So they, they say that what's coming is always on display, which is something we've wanted. Remote camera control for Android phones, 12 hour time format for um, digital faces, additional languages, German, Italian, Spanish, and Polish, the 110 plus workout modes and the AI watch face, whatever that is. So that's coming mid-May supposedly. So we'll, I'll keep you posted, folks. I'm really only including this in today's podcast to let you know that my confidence level on OnePlus was correct. They are aware of, I'm sure they had a wake-up call after the, the negative reviews, the majority of negative reviews, but I had very few problems. I mean, I noted the things that were missing and not working properly in my review, but OnePlus has been pretty good in the past at fixing things. So it's just weird that they didn't release it a little later with all these things in there. <laughs> a bit beta it sounds definitely a bit beta. especially in the u.s nobody would have cared if they had launched this watch in india first and then three months later launched it here like we wouldn't have batted an eye you know i don't know it's very strange but here you go folks it's done well partially it's on its way well that's it for the show i guess Angel, you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet sure uh you can find me on twitter at Anshel sog I also have my own website, onshellsog.com. Uh, I write for Forbes uh, for my the company I work for, which is more insights and strategy. Uh, and I am a uh, analyst, well, senior analyst covering a multitude of things, including smartphones, 5G, XR, PCs, and PC gaming. Yes, this is why we have Anshell on the show right now. Folks, you know where to find me on the internet. I'm at Tankerl, that's T-N-K-G-R-L on Twitter and Instagram. That's like the comic book character Tankerl without the vowels. Please speak with me and Anshel on Twitter if you want to comment on the podcast. And uh, check out my Instagram for some photos of phones and photos taken with phones. I'm about to post some night shots taken with that Infinix phone because it's pretty interesting. There's a couple of YouTube channels you should subscribe to. YouTube.com slash Mobile Tech Podcast is the main channel. It's mostly unboxings, hands-ons, sometimes reviews, that kind of stuff. If you want to see the device we're talking about, on the show most of the time they are going to be on the youtube channel so like subscribe tell your friends all that good stuff we also have another youtube channel we're trying to get to a thousand subscribers so please subscribe it's just in the kind of starting stages it's called youtube.com slash mobile tech more and it's going to be all the peripheral stuff to mobile so things like smart home travel tech generally speaking the things that make your mobile life better but not necessarily directly our mobile are going to be on there so check that out again like subscribe tell your friends all that good stuff you also know where the podcast lives it's at mobiletechpodcast.com if it's your first time here you've fallen on shell here check out the podcast by subscribing we're on google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, pocket cast spotify pretty much everywhere you'll find good podcasts you can find the podcast and you should subscribe also if your app supports rating or reviewing the podcast please do it's good for discoverability and uh, finally there's a donate link in the show notes through my tankgirl.com website if you can help out by donating that'd be great it's actually a paypal button in there so it's pretty straightforward and then finally, I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible's been with the show since the early days. They're pretty awesome. They have a special deal for you folks, a 30-day free trial. You get to keep a book at the end. If you want to support them and support us at the same time, you can do that. AudibleTrial.com slash mobile tech is the URL. That's AudibleTrial.com slash mobile tech. If you're not familiar with Audible, they're the number one 
audiobook platform in the universe and they're fantastic. If you're a bookworm like me, you love to read, but maybe you want to listen instead of read and your eyes are tired or something. Maybe you're a delivery driver. You're driving that UPS truck that drops off all the cool stuff at my house every day and you can't get your eyes off the road, but you want to listen to stuff. Audible's got you covered. Great selection of books. Tons of books are read by the authors, which is one of my favorite things. A lot of these books are super long, epic. It feels like you can't really do it all in one shot. So you just kind of put it down for a few hours and listen an hour, two hours at a time. It really does feel like a book experience, which is great. So yeah, Audible, check it out. audibletrial.com slash mobile tech for your special free trial of awesomeness. I want to thank Audible for being with us since the early days. And I want to thank you, Anchal, for being on the show yet again. Thanks for having me yet again. <laughs> we'll have you on at some point again and folks will have another show next week so stay tuned for that until then cheers everybody this has been the mobile tech podcast with tank girl proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com you can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com